Broadcasting live from inside the power band, this is The Blah. In this episode, everybody dies. I'm your host, Kevin, along with my super awesome friends, Ben. Hey, hey. And Chad. Hey, hey. Folks, welcome to the podcast this week. Our enthusiasm level is at an all-time high of 2 out of 10. And we're going to be talking about a very relevant uh, film that is actually still in the theaters right now. And it's called Uncut Gems, starring Adam Sandler. This was actually recommended by one of our listeners, uh, Sherry, out in Oregon. So we thought we'd give it a watch and have a conversation about it. So here we go. The film stars Adam Sandler, Eric Bogosian, Judd Hirsch, and a whole paella of other talented actors. Guys, just a quick aside, I wanted to acknowledge the fact that it's a very special day. Yeah? It's a day where people in the United States, families, gather together to celebrate the superb owl. The superb owl. Wow. Yeah. Is it Superb Owl Day? It's it's Superb Owl Sunday. Oh Jesus Christ. That's right. Super Bowel Sunday. I know, right? Oh my god. You should you should have like a school bus full of children because that was the daddest dad joke I've ever heard in my fucking life. Hey man, don't blame me. It's it's a Reddit thread and it's been going for quite some time. <laughs> that was amazing. I thought it was actually I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was really good, Chad. I didn't it's because you are a dad of a school bus full of children. <laughs> oh, my God. Somebody's wide awake. So I, I don't know who you guys put your money on, but but I'm all in on Woods of the Owl this year. I think he's really going to pull it through. Ooh. Is, which, one's the, which one's the owl from the uh, Tootsie Roll pop commercial? Because that's who I've got my money on. Well, that's, that's the owl I bet it on. Uh, it's that, that was my second choice. Okay. Ah, all right. I'm against you guys then. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's just Mr. Owl. Uh, miss, how many legs does it take? Yeah, that a bastard. One, a two, three, four, five. Five? Four? What are you talking about? No, it was always like four or five, right? It was three, bro. Come on. Oh, sorry, bro. You can't bet on that shit now. You're disqualified. The, the answer, of course, is three. Yeah. You have been banished. Well, good call, Benny. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's. I guess it's kind of has some relevance considering how much of a sports ball movie this movie ended up being. Yes. Yeah. That's that's the that's the very tenuous thread I was trying to attach to this. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uncut gems. Yeah. Let's talk about this um, film. High level. High level. High level. Well, it's fantastic. Yeah, you liked it? Yeah, I really liked it a lot. We, we've we made some sort of like comments and we've had a couple of very some small asides about Adam Sandler on the show. You know, you watch a movie like this with Sandler and you're just like, wow, it's it, it's like punch drunk love. He was yes. um, so good. I love that movie. And, yeah, it's a really great movie and such an, a radical departure for him. And there are other actors that have sort of made 90 degree turns like that. You know, like Robin Williams was a guy that, you know, back when I was younger, I never would have thought like he would be good in a serious film. And then I saw Awakenings with Robert De Niro and it's like, wow. I mean, the guy really, really knocked it out of the park. You know, Jim Carrey's the same way. I mean, there's a lot of comedic actors that are like that. And I, I really feel like this is Sandler's calling almost more than anything else. Like between this and Punch Drunk Love, like he can really bring it, man. Yeah. And it's really, really great to see because aside from Happy Gilmore and kind of Billy Madison, I really don't like a lot of his comedy movies, you know? Mm. So that that's sort of my high level thought, man. I, I feel like this is where his power band actually is doing stuff like this. And he should absolutely do more of it. Certainly, as he, he gets a bit older, too, I think it would fit really well. Totally. Benny Hanna, what are your high levels, dude? I, I agree, Kev. Um, I think this is what Adam Sandler should be doing. He's He was just magnificent in this film. I think Adam Sandler has never really went away. And, you know, he's his comedy movies, I, I'm kind of with you on that. There are some that I, I like, but I feel like the more that came out, it was like he was jumping the shark. 
Yeah. And the, the humor just started to get old, you know, the, oh, would you like a piece of pie kind of shit, you know, like <laughs> Sandler gets a lot of, he's never said that. I don't think Sandler gets a lot of flack for that kind of shit, but he's a terrific actor. Um, mm. You know, I'll, I'll Punch Drunk Love was incredible. I couldn't believe what I was seeing when I, when that movie came out. So I totally agree because you recommended it to me. Yeah. Did I? Cool. Yeah. Yeah, you did. I remember that. And uh, I remember watching it and being like, wow, this is so different. Very different. So anyway, sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead, Ben. Finish your thought. No, no. So anyways, when this film came out, I was I was excited to see what he was going to bring. And I was not disappointed. No. That being said, as somebody who suffers from anxiety, this movie really fucking put me on the edge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This was not helping me. I was curled up in a ball in the corner. <laughs> I watched it last night with Emma and I was kind of like chatting with her about it afterwards just because, you know, we're going to we were going to be talking about it today. And I said, so what'd you think? And she just said, it's like watching a movie while listening to a podcast at the same time. Like it was so hard to figure out what was going on just because it was like bedlam, absolute mayhem. And it's like, yeah, fair enough. Yes, it was. It was a very manic film, which fit the subject matter, but it was like trying to pay attention to two things at once. You know, there was a hell of a lot going on. You know, my statement about anxiety, I thought the movie did a good job of sort of like whenever I've had a panic attack, it sort of felt like that. Right. You know, like everything's coming at you at once and it's confusing and you're trying to, you know, glom onto one thing. But, you know, there's like a scene where he's, uh, you know, somebody that he owes money to just randomly finds him on the street, but he's arguing with the other guy in the car at the same time. He's like having two arguments at the same time. And it's just like, it's so stress inducing that whole, that, you know, and there's several scenes like that in the movies. So. I think uh, her point is a good one because that is sort of what it feels like to me anyways. Yeah, for sure. Might be worth a quick uh, synopsis. I don't know. Maybe aren't worried too much about spoilers and haven't seen it yet or those that saw it yesterday but forget it already. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Chad, why don't you give a synopsis and then I'll, I'll, I'll give some more pedigree information about um, you know the various mechanics of the film. Yeah, sounds good, man. So Adam Sandler plays the main character who's a gem slash jewelry dealer in the Diamond District of New York City. He's got a gambling problem and his marriage is falling apart. And he's just kind of one of those guys that has too many things going on at once and robbing Peter to pay Paul and his entire world just goes to complete shit because he's kind of a fuck up. And the movie takes place in the midst of a series of fuck ups and um, really surrounds his addiction to betting on basketball. So there's some really great cameos by some hip-hop artists and NBA stars and stuff, and it's kind of the unraveling of his existence and a through line to his arc as a fucked-up gambler, I suppose. Would you add anything to that synopsis? No, I wouldn't add anything to that synopsis. That that sums it up pretty well. Mm -hmm. Okay. This film was written by Ronald Bronstein and the Safdie brothers. I think I'm saying that right. And that would be Josh. Who also directed it. Yeah, Josh Safdie, Safdie and Benny Safdie. And they've made a couple of other films. They have a production company. They're uh, they're best known for A Good Time, which was a Robert Pattinson, starring Robert Pattinson a couple years back. That kind of was their breakthrough movie. So I've always wanted to check that one out. I've heard good things. Yeah. Um, additionally, this film was made for around $20 million, and it is still in the theaters. And of course, we encourage everybody to go see it. I'm going to go ahead and say that. And it's already made about close to $50 million, So it's definitely made well more than twice its budget back. So it's a success. Mm. And it's available on Netflix would have really kind of taken away from the theater tickets and stuff. Yeah, but not Netflix in the U.S. because we had a sort of like a thing about this in the last couple of days. It was. Oh, really? Well, yeah, we understood that it was supposed to come out at the end of January on Netflix. But as the end of January approached, I could not find it anywhere on Netflix. And then I read that it was being released on Netflix Europe at the end of January. So I don't know. Oh, well, it's, yeah, Netflix over here, so. Yeah, just not here. I think it's because it's still playing in the theaters, and that makes sense to me, so. Gotcha. Go see it in the theaters or look for it on Netflix because it's really well worth two hours and 15 minutes of your time. Yeah, cool. Circling back to high level, I kind of feel like, for me, it was the Jewish Joker. It was quite a similar arc hmm. and really reminded me of it a lot. Like, similar in the sense of, like, tons of tension, kind of a 
is obviously completely different in terms of like how messed up the main character is. But, you know, in terms of already having said spoiler alert, like it culminates to a very similar place as well. Yes, it does. And, um, I think one thing that surprised me was like how violent this film was. Like, I guess I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been, but I didn't really get that it was about him being a degenerate gambler straight away. Like I could see that that was in there, but, and I I guess this is sort of like a compliment to the writing. Like I, I kept thinking it was going to go in a couple of different directions at various points in the film. And I, I really enjoyed that. I like films like that. So yeah. So yeah. And stuff. And then I found five bucks. (laughs) <laughs> and then I found $5. Who'd you bet it on? I bet it on um, the Tootsie Roll Owl, dude. <laughs> <laughs> the Tootsie Roll Owl to place. But it was a parlay. What I, One of the things I really enjoyed was Adam Sandler getting to make a film that's so close to his being a New Yorker and being obsessed with basketball. Like, I, I think it really brought a lot of gravity to to his ability to really inhabit the character, even though the character is probably very different than who he is as a person. I don't know. Maybe I'd never got that. He was really into basketball, but yeah, sure. I, I could totally see that. I mean, you know, as an actor, you got to play to your strengths and, you know, experience is your friend, meaning life experience. So, you know, anything that you can pull from, this is my opinion, of course, is helpful. So, you know, for him in the city being Jewish, he's Jewish, right? Yeah, I believe so. Him being Jewish from the city, basketball. Hence, hence the Hanukkah song. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly, hence the Hanukkah song, duh. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Chad. That's a, that's a good point. Here's something that I will say about him in this film. I was never thinking about Adam Sandler when I was watching this film. Mm, yep. And and that is a really great thing, and a, it's a super great compliment to an actor. And I never once saw Adam Sandler. I was just... He was just how he so inhabited Howard. So I guess I'm sort of building on what you were saying. Like he inhabited him beautifully and so in such a rich and full way. It was a really rich character and a rich portrayal. I like being immersed in a character like that. You know, you were just you were so him like from a POV sense, like, wait, wait, what's he going to do next? What's he going to do next? You know, like I, I really, really enjoyed that about this movie. Yeah, definitely. It's it's such a it's a really rich character brought to life so well by Sandler because the character is really more or less despicable. Like he doesn't seem to have many redeeming qualities, if any at all yet you find yourself rooting for him in this film. Did you guys find that? Absolutely, man. I was really wanted him to dial it in and I kept thinking he was going to do just that. Yeah. I was like, I was hopeful for him. I was like, Oh, maybe if he scores this time, you know, like, that'll be it. And he'll turn his life around, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, it plays, plays to my comment that I made earlier about not, you know, thinking that the film was going to go in a bunch of different directions at a, at a few different points. Um, I kept thinking at one point, like, okay, he's going to, he's going to slide this cash around. He's going to make this bet. He's going to like double, triple his cash. He's going to pay off, you know, the various different people he owes money to. And then, and then, some whole other thing is going to start happening, you know, that's unrelated to gambling. Like that, that's actually where I was in my head for a good deal of the film. Mm. Yeah. For me, it was more like what a schmuck, you know, like I didn't have a lot of sympathy and was like, this guy's a complete piece of crap. But as the film goes on, you do start rooting for him. Definitely. So by the end of it, I was, I was a hundred percent where you were Benny with hoping that it all came good for him. Yeah. Something to be said for the the acting and the writing to create that turnaround in a film, you know, where like your first opinion. Kind of, well, I mean, it stays there, but you you end up somehow rooting yeah. for him or identifying with him or, you know, just feeling for his uh, some sympathy. Yeah, you have sympathy for him. You feel for his weaknesses, you know, like he just can't help what he's doing. And, you know. Yeah, I agree for sure. So w- when both of you guys were saying that kind of you have sympathy for the character, but then Kev, you were saying that kind of like your expectation of where it was going to go is a little uncertain throughout the film. I kind of really feel like, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but I feel like it was super intentional to really keep the audience on their toes and keep guessing what was going to happen. Like you're constantly wondering what kind of jump scare is going to come out at you. And, and it really culminates throughout the film. And like, an example of that maybe was like later in the movie, he's like bringing the recycling bins in and you, you totally expect someone to jump out of the woods and just punch him in the face, but nothing happens. You know what I mean? Mm. exactly right yes that that is that's what i'm talking about 
it all like leads up to the payoff at the end where, you know, Sandler gets blasted in the head. You know, you're, the whole time you're just totally second guessing what's going to happen. And you think something's going to happen to this character or that character. Or this deal is going to go better. And it's kind of not ever quite what you expect. So that when he, you know, when the crescendo of the film happens, you're just like, I laughed. I laughed out loud when it happened. I was like, oh, shit, man. You know, like it was just kind of like totally unexpected, even though kind of when you step back, it should have been expected, I guess. You know, when you find out there's somebody after him for money, you're, you know, at least I was kind of like, oh, fuck, like, you know, this is serious. This is really serious. But then it's like there's the whole scene where, like, they catch him and they take off his clothes and they put him in a trunk and you're kind of like, oh, and then you realize that the guy that's after him is actually family. His brother-in-law or something. Yeah. Yeah. It takes like the threat out of the situation. It kind of at that point, I was like, oh, this is a nothing burger. This is just like, you know, tension ratcheting or whatever. So this isn't like the the plot isn't going to hinge on this at all. Exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, clearly I was wrong. <laughs> no, but it's not even that you were wrong. I think you were right. It like it is nothing. And it is a family member being an asshole, justifiably frustrated about his un- inability to get money, but then hiring a couple of goons. And then, you know, the goons take matters into their own hands at the end. You know, it kind of is a nothing burger right up until the goons are just like, you know what? Fuck this and just blast him. <laughs> and his brother-in-law. No, it was like it was comical. Like the you know the the brother-in-law was comical, and the goons were like kind of comical. Like I didn't I didn't expect that at all. Like it, the whole thing seemed rather toothless to me. Like the goons didn't seem like they were actually that menacing. You know? No, and I never I never thought it was going to escalate in the fashion that it did. Like like they were just a couple of tough guys from the neighborhood, you know, or whatever that he threw a couple fuzzles to to you know <laughs> rough up Adam Sandler. Like it didn't seem like they were real mafia guys or something you know yeah right like they were like c-level thugs not like a level right but i can't decide whether they were like c-level thugs that watch too many mob movies or whether they were like former mobby dudes that haven't gone back to that space in a long time and then gotten you know pushed over the edge you know like it kind of it kind of threads the needle between those two but whether they were legitimate thugs or whether they were wannabe watch too many movies thugs it kind of doesn't quite make it crystal clear and then that also pays off with the crescendo in a way well that's that's the beauty of it is that the escalation is in the background so like i think he even says in the film you know it, it, or let me let me let me say it like this. It's like when somebody's like, "Okay, keep it up. You're gonna be sorry," and you know, and the person's like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." And it's like that. That's how it went in the film. He kept throwing out these seemingly empty threats, and you were like, "Okay, yeah, whatever. He's not gonna do anything." And then, I mean, Chad, you were saying that you were laughing, but like, I was totally shocked. Like when he got blasted really? in the head. Yeah, I was like, "Whoa!" It wasn't like a funny laugh though for me. It was just like a "oh shit" laugh. No, no, I get that. I'm just saying that I it, I did not see that coming. And I was like, wow. And then when Arno got shot in the head, I was like, even more so. I was like, oh, dear. Yeah, I knew the I knew the one goon with the with the gun was going to do something. It's pretty clear that he had come unhinged like in that final act. So I wasn't I wasn't surprised, but it was quite abrupt. <laughs> All right. I didn't know that he was going to I didn't know that that was going to happen. But I knew something was going to happen. Yeah. And th- I think that really is what reminded me a lot of the Joker, which we don't need to get into great detail on. But like the abrupt and unexpected. Stop trying to troll me with Batman references, dude. <laughs> you already brought up Robert Pattinson once. I mean, that's come true. On. I just like trolling you with Batman references. What can I say? But the unexpected nature of the kind of gunshot situation in that one it very much had that same surprising nature. And it very much had that ratchet all the way up until it happens, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely 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 you also mentioned um i didn't mention anything i don't mention things okay what do you do then you preach i proclaim go ahead like you're in the proclaimers and you would walk 500 miles i am early death um whoa hey probably not gonna leave that in the show but now i have to because i said that um, I, I'm sorry, Chad. I, I had to choke back the urge to start singing the song. You should have sang it. That would have saved my life. Well, I figured it's going to be, they're going to put a little bed underneath you once you say that anyways. So it's kind of pointless for me to do that. Well, yeah, but that's EBD gold, you know? Um, listen, I would, I honestly, and I would walk 500 <laughs> miles and I would walk 500 more. Perfect. You happy now? I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> can we just, can we put that on repeat for the 30 second sizzle reel? Uh, yes, we can. 
You, you don't. <laughs> can we also lose all of our listeners in that same 30 seconds? We can. And you should never tell me to suggest something like that to me because I'll do it. <laughs> T- take it easy, man. I, I, I'm a little too sensitive for hate mail just yet, you know? <laughs> one, of, one of the things I really liked about this was um, the use of cameos where people played themselves. Like, I really enjoyed a lot of the hip-hop artists and obviously um, Kevin Garnett or whatever was this? Is it Kevin? Kevin Garnett, yeah. Yeah, Kevin Kevin Garnett. Did you did you watch the movie? Yeah. KG. <laughs> I don't fucking know. I don't I don't really follow B ball that much, but um I just really enjoyed kind of the way that real life was woven into the film. It made it seem much more like a kind of like a cinema verite style documentary as opposed to a drama by having those legit current pop culture stars involved. And I thought they all did really good jobs. Absolutely. I agree with you 100% talking about the cast and the writing at the same time a little bit. Um, I really enjoyed all of those other characters. They really elicited a lot of emotional responses from me. So the guy we were talking about before, um, the henchman in question, who kind of ends up being center stage in the film is, is uh, the character's name is Phil. And it's played by Keith Williams Richards, who is actually a former first responder um, at 9-11. So... Oh, shit. Yeah, that was it. I swear I've seen him somewhere else, but maybe he just is one of those guys. He's been in a couple of things, but I thought it was really interesting that, that that's, you know, part of his pedigree. Anyway, yeah, him and Demony, who, who was played by Lakeith Stanfield, he was the guy who was, you know, kind of recruiting people into Howard's showroom and he had the watches there. He was the one that was sort of kind of connected to KG and to The weekend. Him and Phil in particular, but most of the other characters like really did such a great job that I I really found myself disliking them a lot. And that, <laughs> well, I, I know it sounds funny to say that, but like... No, it makes sense. That's the kind of response you really want from an audience, I think, is people loving you, hating you, you know, exactly what you're trying to convey. And um, Lakeith Stanfield's character was very much like, I was like, this kid is such a punk. I can't wait to watch him get knocked down on the crowd <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and ditto with ditto with Phil. He was so like just annoying and like always trying to like, you know, come over the top and um, bluff charge everybody and all of that. You know, it was like, you just wanted to deck him, man. And I, and I, I love that. I, I laugh because when I was a kid, like a teenager was really into movies, but also wasn't mature enough to, you know, separate the actor from the role. And so I would find myself hating actors based on them playing a, a villain in a movie. You know what I mean? So, Oh my God, totally. I did ev- the same thing. Absolutely. It's totally kind of like, it made me chuckle because uh, it reminded me of that old school, you know, juvenile bullshit that I just was, was too dumb to, to know any better about. Oh, no doubt, dude. I used to, I used to see other films with those actors. And I'd be like, Oh, there's that guy. I just hate it's like you don't you don't hate the guy <laughs> right but just like nowadays like you said it means he's a good actor or she's a good actress or whatever it's just it's great the total random nugget for lakeith stanfield which i didn't recognize is he played snoop dogg in get in um uh, straight out of compton mm-hmm. yeah straight out of compton which i still haven't seen i was dying to see it when i heard it was coming out yeah and i still haven't seen it it's good you should check it out uh, you got any casty stuff, Benny? I was doing some research, and um, that, unfortunately, I don't have like names. But um, there was a lot of buzz about the fact that the movie was populated with a lot of real world people from like the jewelry district. Mm. Like a lot of the people that were in it were actually players, like real people. You know, real interesting, real people that live and work there. So I thought that was interesting. I love those guys that he hawked that um, Celtics ring to. They were amazing. Yeah, they were awesome. I loved those two guys. If they were real world, then bravo, man. I mean, because they just... Then I want to go visit them and sell them something. Well, maybe. I want them to totally take every penny I've got because I want to like go and hang out with them. You want them to put a 10% VIG on them, on your item. Exactly. Yeah. I want them to just completely screw me on a deal because I'm a bad negotiator. Yeah, they brought such authenticity and it's probably because they were real world people and they just whatever they were probably just doing what they normally do but they did a really great job and i i really was like wow these guys are amazing man you know like thinking about the actors but they're probably not not even actors at all but at the same time you know like you've mentioned 
maybe not on the air, but off the air, like it's a big difference between being yourself and then being yourself on camera or, you know, on mic. So it's impressive that these guys could, you know, take their real life experiences and be able to be on screen and do a good job. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. No, no, you're right. It is really hard to do that. You know, it's one thing to be like, oh, just be yourself. And it's like, you go to be yourself and you're like, oh, wait, how do I do that? Yeah, exactly. The um, That kid uh, that worked alongside him that kind of quits while he's having an argument with 17 people in an anxiety attack inducing a multi-argument uh, battle, Benny. Mm-hmm. The kid Yussi or whatever evidently is one of these real-life Jewelry District dudes, and he's got a, a pretty awesome Instagram that I saw. He's tracks NYC T-R-A-X-N-Y-C, and it's just like post after post of just the craziest bling, and it's just it's pretty funny. You should check it out. I didn't know that they were they were all uh, jewelry kids, but yeah. Well, they're they're not all, but the movie is apparently heavily populated with a lot of real world, you know, folks. I mean, including people like Kevin Garnett, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you never know how that's going to work out in a movie. It's either going to bring it like closer to reality, or it's going to if it doesn't work out, it'll make it, you know, like it adds like another layer of abstraction that makes it less believable. But I think they did a great job in this. And uh, but that scene, man, where uh, where you see is like threatening to quit and like there's like seven arguments going on and and uh sandler's like opening up the cooler and like digging through the fish to try and find the, oh, the yeah, opal. Yeah. like <laughs> that whole thing is just fucking like i'm like oh my that thing was <laughs> that whole scene was very stress inducing for me <laughs> totally man <laughs> very much so man you gotta love the way that he wrapped that scene up you see was like oh, you know, i just came exactly <laughs> i just came just totally ignoring him uh his name by the way is is Maksud Agajani. That's who plays UC. That's the reason why I didn't say that. Yeah. Couldn't nail it like I did just there. That's it. Yeah, as far as the as the tension ratcheting stuff, I really found the use of tons and tons of handheld cameras was really obvious but awesome choice from a cinematography standpoint. Like, it just keeps things really... I don't know. I don't know if it keeps things tense or just, like, keeps you disoriented, but maybe a bit of both. Keeps you disoriented. Keeps you, yeah. Keeps you off your... Keeps you off balance. Yeah. For sure. And it probably also helps you feel like you're actually there as opposed to it being, like, a whole bunch of Steadicam shit. Yeah. Because you do feel like one of the people in the room when there's all that claustrophobic jewelry store banter with, like, nine people all talking over each other and getting cups of coffee and all that buzzing of the door. and You feel like you're one of them because of the way they shot it. Yeah, totally. It's like you're, uh, it's like you're, like you're Howard Ratner's cousin in town from like, you know, yeah, yeah, from out of town or something. And he's like, he's got you in the shop with him, and you're just following him around through his daily life, and like, you're constantly like embarrassed for him, and like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> experiencing time anxiety and like all these different things related to how his life is is living. Yeah, for sure. And then even if you remove yourself from the like fact that you're following him throughout the movie and just talk about the jewelry store room scenes, you feel like you're at a deli counter waiting your turn to place your order and there's just all these people arguing in front of you and you're just like, okay, just want a sandwich, dude. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally. I just want a Furby, a Furby necklace. Can I just get one of those Furbies? Oh my God. Those Furbies were awesome. That's so ridiculous. I love how hyped up those dudes were, too. They were just like, that is so dumb, but I kind of like it. It's so old. It reminds me when I was in San Francisco, I kind of lived in an interesting neighborhood that's probably all kinds of gentrified now, but there was a shop up the street from me called Mr. Bling Bling, and all it sold was grills and, like, chains and stuff. It was the It was the best store. It was, like, the single greatest store I've ever been in in my life. Oh, man. Did you get a grill? I totally didn't get a grill. Because they were really fucking expensive, but I should have gotten a grill. <laughs> if I had more money, if I had Nantucket money at that time, I would have gotten a grill. Yeah, I mean, how many opportunities in life do you have to buy a genuine grill from a from a store called Mister Bling? Man, I mean, Mister Bling Bling is a great store name. Did you guys see that Jonah Hill was uh, initially in the role? Like they asked Adam Sandler, and he said no, and then Jonah Hill signed on. No, no, I did not know that. It just it would have been interesting. I mean, I um. You know, Jonah Hill did Maniac, uh, I think it's a Netflix original, which is kind of a a bit of a weird one. But um, thinking about his character in that, it would have been um, a bit of a different vibe. Adam Sandler is well known for being a bit of a yelling kind of guy. And I think it works well with this character. But Jonah Hill kind of has a bit more of a like sheepish, neurotic dude in Maniac. And so it it was kind of interesting to hear that there was a 
a casting change. You know, if you think about Jonah's portrayal of Donnie in Wolf of Wall Street, that would have been very similar to this character. Like, that was immediately what I thought of when you mentioned that. I think he would have been good, but ultimately I'm glad they went with Sandler. I don't think he would have been as as good as Sandler in that part. Mm, Yeah. He would have been good, though. Definitely good, but not as good as Sandler, for sure. Like like Ben and I both said at the beginning, like this is this is absolutely what Sandler should be doing more of, is films like this. Like, he's really good at it. Yeah. Did you see his uh, latest comedy special? No. No, I didn't. There was some good stuff in there. I was surprised. I didn't think I was going to, you know, I was like, I was just absolutely bored one day. And I was like, ah, oh, whatever, I'll check this out. And, uh, you know, like some pretty, pretty good Sandler songs better than he's done in, in quite some time, including like a pretty uh, touching remembrance of uh, Chris Farley. And yeah, it was it was not bad. That's interesting. I was a huge fan of his comedy albums when I was a tween. But um, right. That's cool to hear that he's he's has some more current stand up that holds up probably in a different way. That's cool. I'll check it out. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out as well. Yeah, there's probably some low expectations at work there. But you know, yeah, but still. You expect a shit show and the fact that you, you don't, you're not vouching for it necessarily, but you're, what I'm hearing is you're basically like, I said, fuck it and was expecting a shit show and it was all right. So like, precisely, that's, that's a lot more <laughs> than I would have expected from, from him, especially in the stand up arena. Yeah. And uh, because I have a toddler, he has a really awesome Muppets or uh, a song that he sings on Sesame Street. If you want to check that out on YouTube. This is a song about. Elmo. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Who likes to yeah. I, I need, I need that in my life. Yeah. yeah. Song about Elmo. <laughs> It's pretty good. It'll totally educate you. He always rings his bell I'm willing to take a death to bring up uh, Sesame Street, Elmo, Adam Sandler music. I wouldn't feel too bad about that because I wanted to talk about uh, Adina Menzel for a second. At some point, I'm going to make some similar references. So, <laughs> Get into it. She played the wife, Howard's wife in the film. And I didn't realize this really till right now is that she plays Elsa in Frozen and Frozen 2. And whether no you shit. whether you are a small girl or not, like those movies are absolutely humongous. I'm not small. What? So whether you're a small girl or not, I said I'm not small. But he is a girl. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was pretty bad, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you. I thought that was good. All right. All right. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was. Should we, you want to, should we do it over? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't I, I'd rather have no laugh than a fake laugh. Thank you very much. Okay. Chad's great joke notwithstanding. <laughs> Adina Menzel portrayed Elsa in Frozen and Frozen 2 and every single other Frozen property that's come out in between those two films. So that's that's pretty huge, man. That's uh, That is pretty huge. That's that's a really huge property to be attached to. I didn't. I never would have guessed that looking at her. Not that you know, and not that animated characters need to look like the actors, but I just I never would have guessed that. They do a lot of the time, though. Yeah, sometimes they do for sure. But um, that's pretty impressive because she does some pretty impressive singing in that, as I well know, because now I'm forced to listen to the Frozen soundtrack all the time while I'm <laughs> carting my daughter around. It's ridiculous. So I'm so sorry. And now I know all of the songs as well. And now so you're going to you're going to give us a couple of bars. I sing all of the songs as well, like an old stone wall that'll never fall. Some things are always <laughs> true. That's all you get. <laughs> oh my god! I need to come up with a song. You guys have both you both sang a song so far. The Proclaimers, Slacker. Oh, I love it. I have I have a quick about uh, side about Frozen. We can use it or not, but um, <laughs> no, I'm gonna use it. We were. <laughs> Did you just say I have a quick aside about Afros? Frozen. Oh, <laughs> Afros. Yes, Frozone. Thank you very much. Anyways, a job we were doing last winter. A little figurine was found, like, I don't know, out just outside or whatever. And, you know, it ended up like just sort of being around the job through the entirety of the job. And the entire time, nobody knew who the hell it was supposed to be. And it ended up being Elsa from Frozen. Okay. But the funny thing is, like, it, it was like as we were finishing, it was sitting on like one of the windowsills and it had been there for like weeks or whatever. And the clients were German. And one day the, the husband came down and he's like, he calls me over. He's like, Ben, come here. He's like, who who is this uh this little puppet here? (laughs) 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 
It's like, uh, uh, it's, uh, I think it's supposed to be Elsa from Frozen. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's always been here, and uh, my wife and I, we quite like it. I think we're going to keep it. <laughs> Go for it, Hans. <laughs> That's amazing. So, What is this little, who, little puppet? Who is, who, yes. <laughs> who, who is this little puppet here? <laughs> but I've got a quick aside about Soul Glow that follows your aside about Frozen. So my, my I mean, it's it's a pretty uh, hackneyed segue, but my Soul Glow reference, I think, will come as no surprise to you. I loved that five-second John Amos cameo when Howard's kid has to take a shit. It was amazing. Mr. McDowell from Coming to America says, nah, get out of here. Well, I love I love how he was like, yeah, this guy used to be famous. Did you ever watch Good Times? And I, as soon as he said Good Times, I was like, please let John Amos open that door. <laughs> it was so good. Yeah, it was great, man. Oh, speaking of which, another nugget, another uh, IMDb trivia nugget. Sandler and, and John Amos were meant to work together. He was originally supposed to play Chubbs in Happy Gilmore. Get out of here. Yep. And evidently, when John Amos was on set for this, he walked up to Sandler and was like, hey, whatever happened to that golf movie? <laughs> he legit he legit was supposed to be Chubbs. And then the studio were like, nah. So that's a pretty interesting little nugget. They said, no, we're going with Grief Karga instead. Yeah, they did. And you're like, oh, okay. And who is this little puppeteer? <laughs> <laughs> I saw Baby Yoda and I cried. And then I found the Elsa puppet on the windowsill and I cried some more. I love how Werner Herzog is like a special guest on half of our episodes. He's just too good, man. He he's, is too good. He's kind of like our patron saint. Love that guy. I'm down with that. Speaking of cameos, how stoked were you when Judd Hirsch showed up at the dinner scene? I was nervous, and then I was very excited because he was awesome. Yeah, dude, I love him. I know, I like, from when I was a wee lad in Taxi, but obviously because I was uh, of coming of age when Independence Day came out, that's kind of where I remember him from, but he's been in a million things. Yeah, I'd say I most, re- most remember him from Taxi. I now we're gonna get the lowdown from Kev. No, there's no lowdown, dude. I just I don't know on his extensive career. No, <laughs> there's no lowdown. I mean, I actually forgot that he was in Taxi until you just mentioned it. And then in 1987, he did a brief stint on Broadway <laughs> in a musical production of <laughs> of the Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Yeah, it's really cool, man. You wanna you wanna take a take away from a very key well-loved part of the show i'll just stop doing it and we'll just see how great the show is then don't be mad I'm, gonna, I'm taking my ball and going home i'm gonna start my own podcast and and it's gonna be awesome and i'm i'm stealing all your listeners and i'm gonna start a revolution mother trucker and it's gonna be called the eb kev podcast yeah because that's a good name in this episode everybody lives everybody everybody kevs everybody kevs and we're going to live, and we're going to love, and we're going to talk about movies. We're just going to read IMDb. Everybody cares. Everybody cares. Everybody cares. <laughs> you know, part of me, with all that spare time I have, wants to create a bot, kind of like Siri, that reads text-to-speech, and I'll create a podcast that's just... It's just a robot reading IMDb entries, and I'll release it as an Everybody Kev's podcast. <laughs> Wow, that sounds great, man. That that made, that reminds me of um, you know, la- and Judd Hirsch in 1987. <laughs> exactly, man. <laughs> the next movie Judd Hirsch was in was. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'm picking on you, Kev, but it's too wow. easy. No, that's that's really cool, man. Again, I'm taking my part of the show, and I'm. Fucking leaving. <laughs> That's my favorite thing when I when I click on a YouTube video trying to get some information and it just turns out to literally be like a robo voice reading text to speech. Oh, it's so rough. To like a static image. <laughs> I hate that shit. There's a special place in hell. Mm. With that, you know what that reminds me of though, Ben? Two things is firstly an apology to all of the listeners because we made an egregious error in the annals of nerddom last episode, and that error was we were talking about video games and we brought up Grand Theft Auto 
and the name of the gaming system. Oh, yeah. We all were positive it was the Exorbio, and we all should have known better. It was not the Exorbio. It was the Degenitron. And I, I think we included a snippet of the commercial from the Degenitron. And, um, we did. We should include the full clip or the link to the video somewhere. But uh, I just wanted to say sorry to everybody because we should know better than that. That's sorry an, we let you down. Sorry we let you down. It's an egregious nerd error. So yeah, Judd Hirsch is uh, Jeff Goldblum's dad. So I love Ju- I love Judd Hirsch. What? He's Jeff Goldblum's dad in freaking that awful movie. Independence Day. Yeah, like I said, what an actor does is what I think they are in real life. So he's Jeff Goldblum's dad. Yeah, I don't I I feel like I so anyway, circling back before Ben and Chad started stabbing me with little sharp knives. I don't have a like a pedigree laundry list of Judd Hirsch credits. I was just going to <laughs> Re- read them. Say that when I saw Inde- when I saw Independence Day <laughs> and he played Jeff Goldblum's dad. Thank you. And Jeff Goldblum was in full on weird scientist mode uh in his acting career. And Judd Hirsch was playing like, you know, the overly Jewish dad. And it just seemed like there was a string of roles right around then where Judd Hirsch was doing that exact thing. And I was like, yeah, it's not really working for me. So But he did a good job here. He did an amazing job here and he's an amazing actor. I just I couldn't stand I just Independence Day is a terrible film. I'm sorry. Ah. <gasps> Whatever, man. What? Them's fighting words. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What did you? You must have loved the sequel too. You know, it just came out like a year ago. It was really great. No, I, I, I didn't actually see that one. Yeah, Will Smith wasn't in it. <laughs> this is going to be picked as someone's uh, throwback movie. I can see. Oh God! I oh oh yeah. Now, now that I know that it, Kev hates it, I love I love how last episode you spent five minutes reenacting uh, Men in Black, but you're going to shit all over Independence Day. <laughs> 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 Men in Black was actually a good movie. Yeah, right on. We're all in some fucking cat's necklace, dude. In, in some uh, in Independence Day is not. You can't even compare the two films. Mm, fair enough. All right. <laughs> and MIB comes from a comic book and Independence Day comes from nowhere. <laughs> That's a death. <laughs> <laughs> What are you kidding me? I've died like 25 times already. You guys, you guys like just back there with the Judd Hirsch thing, you both stabbed me to death. Then you resurrected me, stabbed me to death again, resurrected me and stabbed me to death again. So there. Mm, you, you deserved it, Siri. Hey, Siri, read from INDB. I did not deserve that. <laughs> There's an interesting segue, though, because that... Uh... The end of Men in Black, where it zooms in on the cat's necklace or whatever, and it's the galaxy, blah, blah, blah. It was very much like the intro and outro to this movie, which I, I kind of, I was digging the gem, inner space style gem zoom in thing. Yeah, and I was I was also like, I, as soon as he started doing that, I was like, okay, this is going to transition into some human body part, and then they're going to pan out, and that's how it's going to start. And sure enough, it did. So I was a little, yeah. I don't know, maybe I was underwhelmed because we just did inner space, and that was the thing, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe. 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 Chad, that was a, that was a super tight segue, by the way, man. Thanks. You know what I found, Ben? I found that Chad is a segue opportunist. And if he if he smells even like a particle of a segue, he will jump in with, oh, hey, this is a perfect moment for a segue, guys. Hey, you just get us back on track, you know, and now we're off track again. Right. Speaking of tracks. <laughs> wow. Man. In this episode, Mulvey takes the beating of his lifetime. <laughs> anyway, go continue. What did you all think? Uh. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you done eviscerating me or do you want to continue? <laughs> oh, I'll keep going if you want. What did y'all think of the score and stuff, like the music and how it fit? Excellent. Excellent. Very good. I love the score. Same here. Super interesting. I, I can't really imagine it with an orchestral or kind of all pop culture-y music. I definitely think it fit really well. I just, I loved how 80s it was. It had a lot of synths going on, certainly at the beginning when they were opening to accompany that those great sort of 80s titling sequences. And the score was, uh, I was sorry, I was just looking up the composer, Daniel Lopatin, 
was the uh, composer for the score. I have no idea who that is, and I don't know what else he's done. He's got a pseudonym, which is kind of a ridiculous name. It's like one O-Trix point never. That's just, I don't know, whatever. It's on Spotify. But um, yeah, you're right. It is one O-Trix point never. It's a pretty dumb name. But his, uh, I was listening to the score before before recording tonight, and it's pretty good. And I was kind of checking out his other stuff. He did um, he did the debut film for these guys as well, the Safdie brothers, the one with Robert Pattinson I was talking about. But I, yeah, I think he did a good job. Yeah, I think he did a really good job. I don't know about his alias, but I think his music's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, um, I mean the the tension ratcheting music was awesome, but the the parts that really stuck it stood out to me were um, like the opening, the song during the or the music during the opening, and then like the, uh, when Sandler's in the back of the cab and he finds out that he won the first set of bets that he made. This look comes over his face and this music starts playing. And I thought that was really awesome stuff. There's this sort of like this music that plays when things go right for for uh, Ratner and that, all that stuff was really cool. Yeah, I think, Ben, it was really, um, you know, we've talked about this a couple of times on the show. Like, this is a great example of one of those scores that just, it's it's not in the background doing its job and you're not noticing it and loving it. You definitely notice the parts that jump out at you, you know, it's at times very present and at times just accentuating what's going along and you're not noticing it, but it does jump out at you a bunch of times in this film. And I really, really, really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. It manages to jump at you in certain parts, but without pulling you out of the movie. Like, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say like, it jumps out at you for all the right reasons and it's intentional as to when it happens. Yes. Yeah. Um, in general, I like the, I don't know if this is something that I'm just perceiving or if it's something that's actually happening, but it seems like there's a resurgence in synthesizer driven scores and soundtracks and movies, and I'm really enjoying it. Totally. I agree. And I don't think you're imagining it. I think it's part of, part of the fact of our generation being the people that grew up in the eighties are now making a lot of these properties and stories and so forth. And they're all things eighties are uh, very much I wouldn't say very much in vogue, but there's, it's definitely a thing. So without going down like a too crazy cul-de-sac, I feel like it's not being imagined. I think it's just our generation's sort of influence on what's happening now. And like I, like I said, like the titling sequence in the beginning of this film is like 1000% 80s. The synth music, same thing. I mean, Stranger Things, the music for Christ's sake. That's what I was going to say. I was gonna. I was gonna say. I feel like this became a, a, and I don't know. I don't know if Stranger the theme song to Stranger Things started it, but I feel like it definitely cemented it as a thing. You'd probably be able to answer this question, Benny, better than I would. But something that jumps out is like it's only in the last certainly twenty years, but maybe less, where you could get software synths that can recreate it accurately without having to go out Aphex Twin style and like buy the actual hardware and mess around with it. So maybe. Maybe that's a factor for the younger creators too. Like they're taking threads from the eighties and then they're able to snag the synths in software and kind of make, you know, noodle around mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. It could be that it could just be an, a, an availability kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, now you can get decent uh, emulated, you know, Moog synthesizers and such uh, instead of having to go out and buy a vintage piece for thousands and thousands of dollars. But um, yeah, either way it's, it's, I like, I like the trend. Hmm. But I'm all on board, man. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate most about this score, maybe just to close it out, is that it's it's not only synth-driven. Like, I like that it blends through, and there's sprinklings of a variety of kind of approaches. And I think you can't really call it a disjointed score because it actually plays quite well together, but it fits with a disjointed movie, like just how all over the place the film is from a storytelling perspective. And it just, hmm. it fit really well. So we need to, uh, yeah, I think we've sort of covered, I don't know, have we covered the plot enough or? Yeah, I mean, like the only thing that jumps out at me is I kind of like the bait and switch towards the end where, you know, he finally gets the gem back and he's sitting in the room with Kevin Garnett and just like goes on this massive monologue where like he's like, you know what, I'm going to bet it all and like passes the bag out the window and she gets an Uber to freaking Mohegan Sun and like it's just kind of a interesting, funny and manic sequence that culminates with this like leather-faced Mickey Rourke looking dude <laughs> in a casino with the uh, the female employee placing the bet. Like I kind of enjoyed that that sequence. The helicopter pilot? No, he wasn't. No, the he pilot. was like the millionaire passenger or something. Yeah, I couldn't figure out exactly the the situation there, but he was definitely like a. 
I think he was like a, su- a super rich guy that happened to be on the helicopter going to Mohegan Sun because he started saying, he was like, oh my God, you're beautiful, baby. You got to come hang out with me in my penthouse, you know? And, and then she, you know, kind of, kind of used him to help, to help get where, you know, she needed to go. But again, that was. That guy is apparently another Diamond District staple. That was what I wanted to get to there. Ah, right on, right on. Yeah. Evidently, he was like a, a Garment District dude. Wayne Diamond is his name. Okay. Ah. But same, same. Like he was a New York real life kind of <laughs> dude. Yeah. He's not the pilot and he's not from the Diamond District. So what the fuck was I just talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and like in one of the final keeping you on your toes moments when Adam Sandler's character has been shot in the head and it like cuts to the rich guy walking out with the bags of money. You're like, did he strangle her and steal the money, the bastard that <laughs> you kind of like have that thought for a minute? Right. For for a minute, I wondered if he was in on it somehow. Yeah. And then it kind of his just opens the door and hands 1.2 million because he doesn't give a shit because he's got a couple hundred himself. And I kind of like that. It leaves that out in the uh, up in the air as to whether she's just like what's going to happen now with her, you know, presuming she doesn't even know anything about what happened back in New York. Yeah, exactly. She's probably going to go back and find them both dead in the in the freaking thing you know oh you're talking about what Juliet? what happens to julia after the film ends yeah yeah, yeah no very interesting stuff I, i'm sorry i was still thinking about the mohegan sun sort of sequence like i just when he got the the 175 from garnett i just the last thing i thought he was again the last thing i thought he was going to do was like take the bag hand it out a window to julia to go put a massive bet like it really just kept hiding and then elevating and escalating rather the fact that he was just an ultimate degenerate gambler. (laughs) Totally. But it also had a payoff in another way too. Like you get, you get the ratcheting tension payoff with the shooting, but you also get the like another payoff where the earlier bet before he gets put in a trunk naked, those guys end up stopping the bet. So he doesn't win any money. And so you kind of get the vibe that it might happen again, where like she gets snagged at Mohegan Sun. And so, you know, the opposite happens and it kind of pays off in an interesting way. I was still rooting for him at the end. Like I was still like, okay, he's going to get the, Mo- he was going to get the Mohegan Sun bet. Then he's going to turn it all around. Everything's going to be great. Oh, totally. And it did. He turned it around and like, talk about dying happy. Like he was happy as a pig and shit. And then all of a sudden a bullet's boring a hole through its head. Head, you know yeah still had a smile on his face yeah exactly <laughs> true yeah really crazy and and again you know like i just wanted to reiterate that when arno dies because he seems to be like the main antagonist in the film finally you know like when you get about halfway through you're like okay he's the antagonist of the film but it's really sandler is the protagonist and the antagonist in the film it's like he's battling against himself and you think like arno's the antagonist but he's not and then he gets shot like i just was blown away when he got shot i couldn't believe it yeah he's just so over his head yeah it really just added another great layer to the whole thing you know yeah he was he was swimming in the deep end of the pool on that one man he he uh he had a couple of goons come in and then he just got way over his head i don't know i didn't read it that way I did. Like, he's got the the goons. He's stuck in the room with the three goons waiting for the game to be over. And they're all sweating in the sweat box and just like, God damn this guy. And then he wins 1.2 million. So, like, as far as Arno's concerned, he's like, problem solved. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and then his, his freaking Muppet minion comes out and just plows a bullet through him. You know? Well, no, that's how, that's how I read it as well. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm, I was reading it that Arno was like, Okay, great. Wow, he actually did it. He he placed the bet. It was a good bet. He made more than enough money to pay me back. Like, we're going to be free and clear. Everything's going to be fine because they are family. And then it was Phil that was like, you know, got scrapper lock and just was like, yeah, no, <laughs> he's going to die. The moment he shoots him is the moment that Arno is now in over his head because he can't get out of the goddamn room. And Phil's just like, chill out, man, chill out. And he just panics and just gets blasted too you know so i don't know i just i really enjoyed uh i enjoyed how much the movie flipped around like it, it wasn't like an m night Shyamalan twist all over the place movie but it it kind of kept you on your toes in a really enjoyable way um well speaking of you know you were saying things that it reminds you of it reminded me of um it reminded me of mad men in a really weird way where one of the things about Mad Men I, I always thought was pure genius on the part of the writers, especially in the early seasons, was how they could take really good advertisements from the 50s and steal them and make them the main character's genius idea. Yes. 
and how clever how clever that was. And so I thought it was similar, like setting this in 2010 and knowing the outcome of the basketball seasons and the games was super clever because they could weave how many points he gets and weave who wins what and whether he's got a good game or a bad game to inform whether the bets go well or not. And I just really enjoy when a writer does something that's that clever, you know, taking from history in order to make their film seem a much more realistic film. I was not aware that that was that those aspects were actually historically accurate. Yeah, I wasn't either at all. And, and I stumbled across them saying, you know, the film takes place in 2010 and da 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 And it just immediately made me jump to the, the, uh, the Mad Men thing. Cool. Um, hey, just real quick, guys, on the cast, um, I just wanted to, because we, you know, we talked about the various actors, non-actors, um, the guy that played the bookie, who could, like right in the beginning, he's oh, like, yeah. get out of here, get out of my, get out of my place, don't come in here. That's uh, Mike Francesca, who is actually a really accomplished uh, sports radio broadcaster. Okay. That's, that's what he does. He's not an actor, as far as I understand, but that was his thing. He has, uh, he had a show forever and ever called um, Mike and Mad Dog. Hmm. Mike, no, sorry, Mike and the Mad Dog. And uh, that that was his thing. So it was, you know, again, kind of apropos that they put him in as the bookie, you know, knowing as much about sports as he does. Um, while we while we're circling back to the uh, actors in this film, uh, really quick, uh, I wanted to mention that I thought uh, Julia Fox was great as Julie. She was, and she doesn't have a lot of credits either. Nope, uh, I thought she was really good. Yeah, she killed it. The whole argument they get into outside the club is was like heavy duty. How New York was that argument, man? Yeah. Yeah, get, getting the poor people in line involved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Back in the day when we used to go down to New York to like party every once in a while, you'd see those arguments in the middle of the night. And like it was just a perfect representation of that crap. Oh, yeah. 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 Full on, full on nuclear meltdown in public. Yeah. Gotta love that. I just love the nuclear meltdowns that then lead to them just being like, I love you, baby. You know, it's just like, guys, <laughs> that was like, I'm surprised no one pulled a knife in that one. And you're fine now? Like, what the hell? That's not a resolution. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. So uh, insert jingled Chad's tidbits or we got anything else? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for our favorite segment of the show. It's called Chad's Nuggets, starring Algorithm. Chad's Nuggets. It's just like. Makes me think you're talking about my nuts, which is kind of weird. But um, <laughs> that's that's what the logo is going to look like. It's going to somehow look like a pair of testicles. The logo should just be a tea bag with a string <laughs> attached to it. No, the, it, what the intro should be is it should be now that we're ready to wrap up the show. That must mean it's time for one thing: Chad's nuggets. So let's get ready for another 45 minutes of showtime, <laughs> starring algorithm. That's it. I've just got a couple. Uh, I. Th- I think we spoke about this in the lead up to the show, but um, it turns out that Uncut Gems is the fourth is in fourth place with the most f bombs ever dropped in a movie. So um, I wanted to throw in the the kill count of four hundred and eight f bombs were thrown in this film. Are you serious? That's a lot of f bombs, bro. Is the Big Lebowski still number one? I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to get Jimmy Google to uh, to look that one up. Yeah, I thought maybe you would just know off the top of your head. No. All right, I've got I've got it's Jimmy Google just passed me a note. <laughs> right. Um I've never heard of it before, but Swearnet the movie has the most with nine hundred and thirty five F bombs. Swearnet is um trailer park boys, I believe. Okay. Well that's got nine hundred and thirty five F bombs. Which sounds about right for trailer park boys. Yeah, and then there's Fuck, a documentary on the word, which shouldn't really count, but nah. and Wolf of Wall Street with 569 so we're not going to count the documentary yeah yeah wolf of wall street beats it wow big lebowski let me see if i can see if lebowski's on here no lebowski's in 29th place with 260 f-bombs wow beaten by pulp fiction and reservoir dogs for example yeah pulp fiction i could see there you go everybody um okay my right nugget is um that the this is this is for you kev this is uh a connection to the top five. The house that was used for the exterior of Howard's um, home is the same house as Freddie Mercury's home in Bohemian Rhapsody, your favorite movie. Get out of here. Wow. Yeah, dog. And that's it. Those are my two nuggets. Those are good ones, man, for sure. Chad, I think from now on, you should only ever have two nuggets. Okay. I can make that happen. Yeah, I like that. But each one is 22 and a half minutes long. <laughs> Insert 22 and a half minutes silence to, to prelude my death. To, to accompany that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you guys want to rate this and wrap it? 
Grady McRadington. Again, the score, the cast, this is definitely were Sandler's power band. Uh, the writing, uh, the direction by the Safdie brothers. This movie is excellent. Twists and turns I just did not see coming. I absolutely love that in the film. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give this movie a nine. Deserves it. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Wowzers. It's up there. Kev's Nuggets. It's the uh, the old Mulvey score. Yeah, that's the Mulvey score. You want to go, Benny? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'm 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 finding it ha- a little hard to uh, rate this film. Uh, we've been watching, we've been consuming so much sci-fi and comic book movies, and you know, nerd culture movies in general that uh, my mind is a little unused to just like trying to evaluate a straight-up drama. <laughs> mm. um, but that being said, uh, Kev, I could parrot pretty much everything that you said. This is an excellent film. Not sure what I'm weighing in against, but I'm going to say that this is definitely, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it eight gilded Furby necklaces. Yes. With wiggly eyes. With googly eyes. I was uh, anxiously awaiting to see what the improbability drive was going to come up with. Just based on, I think, Sandler's performance alone, I think it deserves at least that much of a rating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, as usual, I'm a, I'm a bit harsher with it, but... um. Mm. Uh, of course, of course. I feel like an an eight ish, a seven is eight, a seven ish, eight ish for you guys tends to kind of be the like it's a good slash great movie line, you know. So like it's probably our ratings probably aren't all that different. We just have a different scale. So sure. Um, my first impression, like the minute the movie ended, was like, yeah, I kind of didn't really like that movie. As it sunk in, I've definitely appreciated it a lot more. And 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 the first impression wasn't digging into the great score or the good acting or the good actors. It was more like it was more like my video game tastes where like when I was young and or had a shitload of time on my hands, I would play everything. But as I got older and or had less time, I would only really play certain genres. And so it, it didn't mean other genres sucked. It just meant that I didn't take the time to appreciate other genres. And so I feel like that's some, something here for me. I, appre- I appreciate that perspective for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Bandwidth issue. Yeah. So I guess like my patience level for movies has shifted to being wide open to being like unwilling to kind of go in certain directions. And so this one is similar to other movies that I like, but I like other movies better. So you guys brought up Punch Drunk Love. And and for me, Punch Drunk Love is a fantastic movie. And it is like a stellar performance from Adam Sandler. And I prefer it to this, but that doesn't make this a shitty movie. It just means it's taken a little bit longer for this one to sink in. So when I was chatting with Emma last night, when she asked what I thought, like my my second impression was that the story was shallow. So like the acting was good and the cinematography was good and all of the other things are good, but the story is just knucklehead has deals go bad and it eventually goes really bad. It's like a really basic storyline that has a lot going on around it. And so for that reason, like at first I said, meh. And then as it's developed, I'm kind of happier with it. And I think it's a good film. So it ends up at a 5.2, which is is in the good category and is surrounded by movies like um, Isle of Dogs and The Martian and Sing Street, stuff like that. So it's it's a good film and I would recommend people check it out if they're into this kind of thing. But I definitely still feel that Punch Drunk Love is a is a, a notch above for, for his films. I really do hope that he keeps making movies like this. So. I'm tempted to say it's not about the story. It's about the ride. Yeah. And I think that's a good I think that's a good way to say it. And the other thing, like kind of just jumping off Jarhigo's back is that it's it's immersive. Like you're there, you're in it, man. You are in it. And, and like I said, there was a great POV quality to this film where you were very much like, you know, kind of like being John Malkovich. Like you were Howard, man. Like you were there with him. Like, you know, what's he going to do next? And is he going to go left? Is he going to go right? Like, and, and also something that I didn't even mention that goes with that comment is that the cinematography is great. Like the shots they chose like i really really enjoyed just visually it's great to look at man really liked it a lot you know and the handheld camera work and stuff yeah and there's some you know really tight shots and some cramped spaces and it's done well and there's some wide open shots and it's just it's fantastic and like the kind of the pov and the quasi pov stuff is is great too so but i i definitely see what you're saying chad that's a totally fair point hmm 
I do feel like our our ratings align to a, a pretty good degree. Like, you know, I think maybe I'm firmly in that it was a good movie camp, whereas you guys might be more edging into the great camp. But the fact that it's not like I'm not saying it's a turd by any means. It's it's worth checking out. Well, let me let me be clear here. Like, I, this may not be a film that I will watch 40 times, 50 times. But no, no. You know, again, like we talked about the sum of the sum of parts in inner space a lot. And this movie, like it, it just hits high marks in all the separate categories and it's, it's undeniable. It, it deserves the praise that it's getting. It deserves to make the money that it's made, you know, better than a lot of other stuff out there. I can tell you that. Mm, I hope more movies like it get made. Agree. We've talked about this situation before where it's like, let the creatives be creative. And it's like they were, and they did. And this is what you get. You get a really good film like this. A really great story. No, it's not the most original story, but all the pieces that go together to make that story are awesome. That's why I gave it a nine. Yeah, totally legit. Can't argue with it. That's just your opinion, man. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like, it's just like your opinion, man. It's your opinion, man. We got to do that one, Benny. You got to pick that one one day. Oh, it's it's in there. Uh, you know, when we got the time. <laughs> yeah. It might end up being one of my picks this year. Let's talk about next week. We're doing another television series. We're going to be talking about The Expanse seasons one and two next week. This was highly requested by a bunch of our listeners, so we decided to do it. I believe one of the three of us has read the books. Me. And Ben has seen the series. I am in the process of watching the series, and I am totally into it. So I am very excited to talk about that. And this is good old Mulvey saying, so long for now. See ya. Happy Superb Owls Sunday, everybody. Oh, I love you. And that's going to wrap up this week's episode, folks. Next week, we're going to be talking about the exciting Amazon Prime series, The Expanse, seasons one and two. You can find the show notes for today's episode in your podcast app of choice or at our website, ebd.fm forward slash episodes forward slash 41. You can shoot us questions using the Twitter hashtag AskEBD. You can find me at Mulverine on Twitter. That's M-O-H-L-V-E-R-I-N-E. You can find Chad at ChadNormal on Twitter. And you can find Ben at Jarhego on Twitter. That's J-A-R-H-E-E-G-O. As always, I'd like to take a minute and thank everybody so much for tuning into the show. It means so much to us. And if you'd like to support the show, there are a couple of great ways you can do it. First, by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or any one of the various podcast mediums. Or you can tell somebody to check out the show. Word of mouth is the most powerful way to spread the word about the show. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody, and we'll see you on another time. Bye.